you think it's important playing for the Sydney Roosters, you go and play for a French team in a village and see how important it is to those people. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of the Little Blue Podcast. Today we talk to dual premiership winning coach Trent Robinson. Trent, at the age of 35, won uh, his first premiership in his inaugural year as an NRL coach. He then won it again last year in 2018. In this episode, we get to understand who Trent Robinson is, where he grew up. Mum worked hard for PE teaching and then swimming teaching in the afternoons. And then everything was about us and, and offering us opportunities in sport, pushed us in school and pushed us to, to perform at sport. And what makes him a special leader? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a really interesting point. You can feel when someone's selfish. I think they have to understand that you are a driven individual and confident in yourself, but you will make decisions about what's best for them or the club. Trent thinks very deeply about leadership and life in general, and I, I'm sure that you'll find this a very interesting podcast. Well, welcome everyone. Today I'm interviewing a good friend of mine, Trent Robinson, uh, who's the coach of the Sydney Roosters. Our friendship goes back a few years now, and uh, I met him through the Roosters, but it turns out that we went through the same school, St Greg's, uh, both as boarders, um, out at Campbelltown. And uh, welcome, Trent. Nice to see you here. Good to see you, Paul. So not only did we go to the same school, we were born a day apart. You on the 15th of March and me on the 14th. Mm, a day apart. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been 12 years yeah. and, and one day. Um, so you were born uh, in 1977 out uh, in southwest Sydney. And uh, I'm wondering if you can start by just painting a bit of a picture of, of your upbringing, where, where you grew up and what it was like how many kids in the family and uh, what your upbringing was like? Yeah, so I was the second of two. I've got an older brother, Dean, and uh, mum and dad were uh, living at Camden at the time. So I, I was born, they just moved there maybe a year or two before I was born uh, onto a horse stud, actually, out, out the back of Camden in Cordor. Uh, and your mother's interest was horses or, or both of them? It's sort of funny. They both had an interest in horses, but dad was a bit of a sort of an entrepreneur. He was always looking for, so my early childhood was spent, um, they had uh, t-shirt businesses and uh, going to shows, you know, Sydney show and other shows. And, um, and it was selling, you know, the old, uh, like a, going to bonds factories and getting the old t-shirts, whether you'd either screen print or transfer the, the heat transfers with all the... I remember them well. Yeah, like that was there. They were the t-shirts. The, God, so the, you're one of the cool boys. You had all the latest t-shirts. Oh, I don't know whether I had one of the, the, the... They weren't cool back then. They were just... that was They were the... They had Bonds t-shirts with whatever world's number one dad or right, ACDC, okay. whatever the, the, the... So that was the childhood where... I sort of grew up there and then we moved around a bit, moved from sort of Cordor out to the Oaks, uh, but all it was cent centred around Camden Primary School and then high school just down the road at, at, at Campbelltown. But um, they, they separated quite early, very different people, mum and dad. Dad was a dreamer, a, uh, sort of always searching for something and mum was 
uh, hardworking, rock solid, stable, sort of eventually was a PE teacher before, eventually he went back into PE teaching and, and swimming teaching. Um, so yeah, I had two different uh, she was influences. A, she there. was a swimmer or water polo player of note, wasn't she? Yeah, she was quite good at, uh, I think she played for Australia in water polo and very good at basketball, New South Wales and played a lot for Bankstown Bruins. And, and your father, the dreamer, was he? did he have sporting prowess as well? No, yeah, like he did a bit of sport. It was sort of, yeah, I'm not sure how they met. He did a bit of rowing and stuff. He he grew up in North Sydney. Right. Mum grew up in Riverwood and then they ended up out at Camden. So my whole childhood. How did they meet? Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure whether it was through uh, university friends of dad's or something. I, I don't know exactly how they met. That's your homework for today. Yeah, right? I need to ask mum. <laughs> yeah. um, it was funny, I just went over to New Zealand and Jody's father came from New Zealand and I went to Queenstown and I said, where did your father, where did he grow up? And she said, I actually don't know because he passed away about yeah. 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So she's trying to establish that as well. Yeah, it's think, nice uh, to know these It things. is, yeah. So you, you often talk about your mum and I've met your mum and she is a strong woman and uh, quite a determined woman. And you always talk about the impact she had on you as a child and still has in, uh, a positive impact on you. Can you tell us a bit, bit more about that and then talk about your dad and what impact he's had on you? Yeah, so mum's influence was you know, ever-present sort of in everything that I do. She um, very uh, high moral stance on everything, mum. Yeah. She's very very clear on what she believes in and um, and then what she's going to fight for. Um, and that wasn't always done through, you know, a, a really tactical way. It was, no, 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 I believe in this and I'm going to do it this way and, and you're going to do it this way as kids. So, um, and she worked very hard. You know, we didn't have, you know, the... You know, we didn't have any money. So a PE teacher and she did swimming training at home in the in your pool in the backyard, yeah, didn't she? Yeah, so we, you know, the, the she was PE teaching. So basically they, they lost their, their money and, you know, we lost everything there and, you know, just rented out the back of Camden and mum worked hard for PE teaching and then swimming teaching in the afternoons. And then everything was about us and, and offering us opportunities in sport, pushed us in school. Yep. and pushed us to, to perform at sport. And and she's honest. She's not always subtle, but she's honest. And that's still to today. But she's also, she's sort of a conservative in a way, in the way she's never drank alcohol, never, you know, she's never strayed from from her sport, then family, working hard and kids. That's, that's a whole life. Mm. But then... She's very understanding. Her, her, the, so the kids would often say, oh, your mum was really hard, but I could also talk to her. She had that balance between the two. Um, and then mum went deaf when she was 49, when I was she's, 17. Uh, clinically deaf, yeah. isn't she? Yeah, so she's, you know, she was, she, obviously she's deaf. Like if she, she's now got a cochlea that she had I think maybe 15 years after she lost her hearing, which has made a huge difference, obviously, to yeah. to her and being able to interact without the use of sign language with people. When did she go deaf? How old would she have been? She was 49. I was 17. Right. It was in 1994. 
Ooh. that she lost her hearing over the course of a year. And then she had to go and retrain. She had to go back to university uh, do uh, because PE teaching was through a college when she went through. It wasn't through university, it was through college. Mm -hmm. And then, so she had to go back to university and do a teaching degree. That it comes back through the, the intelligence, the natural intelligence and her determination just there with what you yeah. said. Was your father a smart man? I know he's a dreamer. Yeah, he was, he, he was intelligent, very good at maths, and um, he was an intelligent guy, but didn't have that work ethic. He would, he would have a, he would dream and he'd bounce from place to place, but he was on a continual search for his meaning. What, what was his life look like? And, you know, we've talked about it a bit. He's very, he gave me that, um, you know, he was believed in spiritual healing and... Yeah. And, so um, would it be right, Robbo, when we first talked about your father, um, you weren't critical of, somewhat critical of his mindset and the fact that he was a dreamer and used to, he had, was on that um, search for meaning in life. Yep. Would it be right, as I've known you, that you've now gone more in that direction and you now appreciate what he gave you? Well, I think there's parts of that. Like I detached around sort of when I was 15, 16, around that that need for, you know, a solid father figure type thing. And I and that that allowed us to have a really good relationship where I could observe him because he was on his path mm. and it, I wasn't looking to follow that path. But then I was able to observe him, you know, wave in and out of, lots of different interests and lots of different things. And, um, and, and some of it's become mainstream. So stuff that I used to go there on weekends um, that they were doing is now stuff that, you know, whether it's naturopathy or, yeah. um, you know, that back in the eighties, that wasn't, you know, it's always been around, but you know, it's, yeah. it's a bit more mainstream now or, you know, affirmation type stuff and past lives and muscle yeah. testing and, and elongated hugs. And yes, he was a, there was a certain method about hugging. And, and I, look, I enjoyed that search, but I, I learned a couple of things. It's okay to search and it's okay for everyone to be on their own path. Hmm. But if you're searching for it, if I just do this, it'll be right, it'll be okay. Then you can spend your whole life looking for that moment where it's okay. And that I learned that we're all okay right now. We're just... We, you know, it's that sort of uh, insatiability of human beings that there's always something more than what you've got. It's yeah. hard to be just happy. I, I suffer that a little bit myself. It's hard to be happy just in the moment. What yeah. you've got is good enough. Yeah, and it and it's hard because those there's a lot there's a whole group of self help out there which is really helping people. Mm. Um, but I experienced a lot of that throughout my whole childhood through him. Yeah. That these people that gravitate towards that. Um, amazing people, really good people, but they're searching for the answer. Uh, and the you answer might, you, is you, in you, the, you, the struggle, the joy of the struggle, the, you know, the it's okay to be me and I can keep improving, all of that. Like I, I learned some stuff through that. Yeah. Um, and dad was on the path to, look, if I just do this next thing, everything will turn <laughs> instead of... You know, that, that you might have a, outed me there, Robbo. I think I'm one of those, um, as a younger man, I was definitely into the self-help books, that part of the, the local bookshop. 
and uh, I only saw it as a positive connotation to be in that area, that you had a, a thirst for, yeah. for knowing and understanding. Well, that's never and, stopped. We've talked about it. Mm. But you've got to do, you have to act at the same time. And that's what you've done. You've acted and consistently acted mm. in, a, in a certain way, which is why you get to, you know, live in this environment that you live in with GSA. And, you know, and that's, that's the thing. You have to act. Yeah, that's a really important thing. You can be on your search. The search is never ending, but act whilst you're searching is important. Do you feel deprived in any way that your parents didn't stay together, or do you, it's not? It's of no consequence to you that they didn't stay together and you had. No, a, a I don't. Sleep. I can't imagine them together. Right. Okay. I was listening to how I should have turned out by Jordan Peterson the other day, based on his views on relationship, and I. You know, there's some things I agree with and don't agree with in his stuff, but mm. that's why I listened to him because he was quite different to me. So mm. he was saying about people, parent, couples must stay together because if you don't, then this is how kids turn out from divorced parents. They're four times more likely to right. be addicted to drugs. They're four times more likely, to, all of that sort of stuff. And it was interesting to listen to that, but I think, there's certain things around the way that definitely um, the way that my mother and father dealt with it in a really, um, re really good way. Right. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of animosity between the two. No, and if the, you, you could, you, obviously you could feel the hurt, yep. but they didn't pass that on. I feel like that was a really, a really important part of it. Yeah. And, I, and they, they, they were not suited. They should not have yes. been together. So <laughs> I remember that time clearly, the breakup. Like I remember it as a seven-year-old really clearly. But that doesn't mean that that's a negative in my life. That was something that happened that hurt, but it doesn't mean that it was a negative. I think... Um, my brother, who's been a lifelong teacher, Peter, who you know, He's of the view that if the kids that he teaches, if the if the parents' relationship is dysfunctional, they're better being apart for the mm. sake of the child. So it flies in the face of what that author, what was the name of that fellow? Jordan Peter, Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it, I, I'm sure that that stuff comes out, but you know. So then you went to St Greg's, which is uh, what we share in common. Uh, St Gregory's College, Campbelltown. It's an agricultural boarding school. What's your memories of that? All positive or? So my early memories was that I was always going to St. Greg's. Right. I okay. think but when you would have been there, or maybe before you got there, you could enrol very early on. Yes. And you yeah. would, and that was it. You were enrolled in the school. But so mum enrolled me very early on. And in our area, mum was said, you're going to St. Greg's. It's the best school in the area. Yeah. So, but then I had to interview by the time they stopped doing all that. And I remember, so very early on, it was you're going to this school because of uh of it'll turn you into a man yeah so and that there's always the exception to that rule robert yeah there is. <laughs> and you know it, i look back on it um as a school that it was pretty important in my formation i wasn't so i know we'll get to the rugby league but i mm. i wasn't into rugby league when i went to st greg's you're a swimmer well i was swimming cricket I played soccer on weekends. Golf. You're a good golfer. I played golf and I I played soccer in year seven. Right. And, but then the bug hit 
if you go to St Greg's, you, yep. you get the footy bug because of the pride that it has in rugby league. But when I went there, it wasn't. It was for... Mm. Um, and mum said that you can play. What were your best at out of those? Cricket, swimming, golf? What? What? Probably very early on was swimming. Yeah. State level? Um, yeah, at an early age, yeah. Yeah, so you did swim for New South Wales? Yep. Wow. And then... First grade cricket, wasn't it? Didn't you yep. get to first grade? But what, for Campbelltown or...? No, no, no. I, I finished at 16. Right. For Campbelltown. Wow. So, I, no, I didn't go on and play. At, at St Greg's I did, but at cricket, um, I came through all the, the, you know, the rep team, 16s, you know, 10s to 16s, yeah. the Green Shield, and then PGs, 21s. But I, I'd finished at uh, 16. 16. Because from there I went to boarding school yep. and then I went straight to the Roosters. Right. So all of that, all of the sport, I, I didn't play rugby league at all. It was none of my formation. It was all around swimming, cricket, soccer, um, you know, basketball, so what, all of that. And, then, and you've said to me before that you feel that being good at sport at school helped you academically. It gave you confidence. Well, that's the thing I liked about the school was it went hand in hand. It wasn't like it wasn't a sports school where it was cool not to be good at in the classroom. I've always felt like St. Greg's went hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And so that was, and I, I love school. Like I did, never wanted to miss school. There were subjects I liked more than others, but I, I wanted to do as well as I possibly could. With your mother coming through. Yeah, at school. I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't say I was the most diligent studier, but I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed sport. Every afternoon was playing sport. So that, that was where my life revolved around St. Greg's from when I was 11 to 18. A, a prefect or anything at St. Greg's? No, not in year 12 or anything like that. Right. No. We'll get to leadership um, a little bit later on. But then, but I'm interested to know about rugby league because it, it, I, I have this view that in 50 years' time, if we're still alive, maybe 40 years' mm. time, we'll look back and go, did they really do that to each other? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rugby league is... What did you love about it, mate? I'm just fascinated because it, it, I remember playing it and I remember being scared. I remember yeah. being excited, but it was, it was pretty close to scared. Yeah, that's... And, and I know I've talked to Luke Ricketson this morning and asked him in preparation for this, were you scared? And he said, well, absolutely, but you were prepared. Yeah, and that's... There was the... definite fear, though. You know, you, so at, at the beginning, it was around you, you, you wanted to be the best in, the, in sport at school. And I was attracted to league because everybody was attracted to league. Yeah. We all watched it. We all played it in the backyard, but it was not something I played on. My friends didn't play, so we didn't play on the weekends. And then you go to St. Greg's and you look at it and you go, and there was a, there's a, you know, it's not, um, it, it's it's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable sport. It's physical contact. So there is that balance between um, that talent and skill and, and, and how is your decision-making and all of that that you get in all sports. Mm. And then you've got to hurt someone else whilst you're trying to do that. Or there's that, that physical contact which makes it uh, very uncomfortable. 
Was that the challenge for you to try and manage that uncomfortableness? Well, the whole, your whole career is, is all of that. Right now, that's, you're asking guys to do something that's really uncomfortable, but that's why we love watching it. This is really important because, mm. you know, you've got your boxing and your MMA now and all of that, right? So they're individual sports where an individual decides to put themselves in uncomfortable situations. Yes. But then there's a group of people that, have decided that they want to do that through a skill-based sport and the most extreme sport of that is rugby league you know and I think we openly know that it's a little bit more than rugby union it's definitely more than soccer and um, any of the other sort of mild contact sports rugby league is that thing where you have that question am I really going to play it as a team sport and that's why we love watching it. It's, it's uncomfortable and exhilarating all in one. And that's why people are attracted to people that play that sport. And you've, you've said before that, it, that sport, and in this case, rugby league, is the first reality TV. Yeah, <laughs> that's what, what it is. As humans experience. That's, that's what the ancient Greeks loved about the Olympiad and all that. That's why it was created because um, they, they wanted to see humans do feats that seemed impossible and they could observe people doing it. It's, it that was, you know, that's not, it's reality accelerated. It's social acceleration is what I believe in reality television. Oh, but yeah. before we get to all that, that's what sport is. It's what are some of your extreme emotions? Yeah. Now let's play a sport and see whether those emotions can come out in the people on there, I can observe it and I can feel some of it as well. So you're seeing the character of the individual under pressure. And Clearly. Uncomfortable. Clearly. And as in any team sport, rugby league is on the cusp of that where it's so clear the character of individual and a group of individuals. It, it can be seen. It can be masked by skill but not over the long term. It can't be. You know teams that have great skill, but also a great character at the same time. Yeah. You know, you can, and that, that's rugby league. And that's why it's, it can be dangerous, but that's also why it's a favourite for groups, uh, communities, especially in, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Northern England, love to watch that. That, that I, I agree. Unfold. Everyone wants to watch it, and it is there's something captivating about it. And the the you know on any particular day there'll be someone who rises up and becomes a gladiator and and stands above the others. I just wonder, whilst we like to watch it, whether or not there's going to be enough people wanting to do it for the for the pleasure of others. Yeah, and that's and that's the the, the question. The, the the hierarchy. The sport has to create an environment that people want to play, um, and then. We've got to make sure that that's in place. And then we've got to allow opportunities for people to have choice and excel. We don't, life's not for cotton wooling people. Now, administration and all that and hierarchy, whether it's political or, or, or sporting, you know, or whether it's country, whatever it is, hierarchies are there to um, support the population. It could be a population of people living in a country. It could be a population of a sport playing that sport, mm -hmm. company, whatever it is. And you're there to, to help govern, but you're also there to 
um, offer opportunities for excellence and 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 adventure and you know something you know where what's human potential look like so that's the whole thing and if you if you're going to cotton wool everybody then there's going to people will rule rebel suit through other areas as well, well mma is a, 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 a great example of that great I, quickest growing sport all, all I, because I, people want that and robert i look at that well, actually, I can't look at it. There's some level of intrigue that I, I'm drawn to it just to see what people are doing to each other and what everyone obviously wants to watch. But, oh, my God, I, I don't understand why uh, that is so popular, that particular sport. Yeah, and it's it so, is popular it is because so people, human condition is survival of the fittest. They want to they try and, hang on, what am I capable of? And what's my character look like? So I'm going to look in the mirror through the sport of MMA and I'm going to push myself to some extremes. Mm. Now, tell me that why do kids play rugby league? Because it's uncomfortable and exhilarating, but they get to stand next to people that they identify with and say, I can see who you are by the way that you play and I want to be around you. So they'll keep playing rugby league. Yeah. Now, the administration have to implement stuff so that sport can continue to flourish and offer that opportunity. So what I've said to you always is that they need to do something around fatigue and less players in the, in the tackle so that they either have less players on the field or they, they somehow reduce the interchange so you don't get these big, powerful players that are not there for endurance, they're there to, to, to damage <laughs> over yeah. a short period of time. So there's got to be a compromise there where you can keep that gladiatorial yeah. nature of rugby league, but they probably introduce more athleticism and uh, free-flowing or more space yeah. to, to see more of that. Because I think people want to see that as much as they do um, um, the brutality. There's a tipping point. They don't want to see consistently sevens or nines footy, no. but they want to see there's something there that the 13-a-side game has created the rules the simplicity of the rules the six mm. tackles has created a very high combative style but yeah i think we're we're a couple of years away from making some big decisions i don't know what they are i'm probably I, not going to go into that but robo i agree i would say the stuff that we're talking about this year especially mm. um around um concussion yeah. um the effects no one can state what the effects are if you, at the moment, they need to study players that are in the moment. So if you had, I had two concussions and I'm 80 years old, therefore this was caused by that. But I drank alcohol for 50 years and I partied a lot during my 20s and 30s and those two concussions were the cause of, and I'm not downplaying that, the importance of those two. Could be a contributing but, factor. Come on, like there's a lot more study that has to be done. Mm before we, we get the answers on that. Yep. But the debate, we're not at the top of it to make some big decisions. I'd say it'll uh, grow over the next couple of years to the point where we go, okay, what are we gonna do? Yeah, so it's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I, I see it as, as being a, an opportunity. And as a friend of mine says, never waste a good crisis. So there is, a, there is a crisis, and I see it as being a great opportunity to bring, for instance, females to the game. So if it is more athletic, they're, they're mm. going to take more interest. It, it, there's probably going to be uh, mothers to be happier to see their, their sons play, the sons and daughters 
play it if it is less combative. Yeah, and so I, I think, think it's a great opportunity. It is an interesting thing that you say a crisis because it's not a crisis right now. But you, I think we can all feel that it's bubbling away to the point where, um, as I said, in two or three years, everyone will go, okay. Decision time. Let's, let's go. And then, you know, there's, yeah, I'd say there's some big decisions and some yeah. um, smarter people will make those decisions than us. But I don't know whether they'd be any smarter than you, Robbo. So let's just move on. And uh, rugby league had a, it was pivotal to you uh, moving over to France, which is where you played for five years and coached. And it's where you met Sandra. Yep. And uh, she obviously now lives with you and you've got three children. So you are a Francophile and you love everything about uh, France and, and the French people. Can you just, just explain all that to us? What is it you love about, about mm. it? It's funny how things work out and you end up in France at the end of a year. So I think I was 24, 25 and I was, I was done. I was ready to go, but then you're so blinded by the search to, to play in RL that you, but then when you come to that decision, it's quite strange, or it was for me to, to leave. I thought my knees were gonna be bad enough that I was actually, I was always an adventure in my mind. So I was going backpacking yep. and the, 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 the normal route was go to England and then travel everywhere from there. So I thought that that was going to be me. Um, and then I got an opportunity to go to France, but I really, I didn't even, if I knew I was physically good enough, I would have, uh, I knew probably five months out, I would have done French, I would have done everything before I left. But mm. I, did, I thought they were going to, I've actually packed in my backpack that I went backpacking in. That was the only bag that I took. Right. Because I thought that it was going to be that short term. So it wasn't a choice is what I'm saying. It wasn't, I can't wait to go to France and this is the place I want to be. It was... Did you take your boots? I took my boots. I took my boots, but I packed everything in a backpack. I remember thinking, I'll get there and I'll... I only played seven games that year and I thought, they're, they're going to kick me out. Because of your knees? Yeah. But, so it wasn't like I want to go to France and play. It was an opportunity at Toulouse... There's a guy called Carlos Zaudoendo, who the president that came over. And anyway, so that it was sort of one of those, OK, I'll go and play, but then I'll probably end up in England and I'll go around Europe for a few years and mm. see what where life takes me. And then I went to France and the training was a bit easier, but loved the footy. And I ended up. Yeah, it just it opened something up in me going and playing there that. So rugby league was the thing I was playing, yep. but what it gives you any bit of travel for anybody, it gives you perspective on, okay, well, actually, I thought life, I was on the, you know, the, the conveyor belt like everybody else, and I thought this was what life was like, and then you go to a completely different country, completely different culture, and they think differently and do things differently, and, and you go, I'd like that, but I don't like that. Yeah. Or, yeah. or what I thought was important um, was very important or it wasn't. So I, in those, I had three years playing and one year coaching. And in that time, it gave me real clarity on what I valued and what I didn't uh, in life. Yeah. Um, and that, and that it, it was an awakening. I call it my clear eyes. That's where I got clear eyes was in France about what I really wanted. This harks to your 
intelligence and ability to pick up information and retain it. But when you introduced me to Stu O'Grady, the great Australian cyclist, he said when he first met you, he went uh, along to a footy field yeah. and you were in the centre of a bunch of Frenchmen speaking fluent French to them and he'd lived there for some years and, and had broken French. Um, but he said it would just amazed him to see this Aussie boy over there laying down the law in French to the French. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would mean that there, there wasn't many of us. So Stu was, I still remember the game where Stu came. It was sort of this legend cyclist. It was 2004 and he came over and... Had he won Paris de Roubaix? Or Roubaix? They, no, he hadn't won then. No. He'd, he'd won, he'd worn the yellow jersey. I think that was early 98. Right, and he right. was in the peak of his career around that time. Uh, but he had a bad accident, so he had time off whilst we were playing. And there was only, there was not many Australians, there was only a few of us there. So I remember early 2004, um, he came and yeah. And I, that was, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the passion. If, you're, if you want to play rugby league in Sydney, you're immersed in it. It's almost, um, it's almost the conveyor belt. You get on the yeah. conveyor belt and you play rugby league because everyone's playing rugby league. And, yeah. If you want to go and play in France, you've got to search for it. You're that sport that rugby union players, if they're not good enough, they'll go and play or it's an underground sport there. Mm -hmm. So their passion is through the roof. And then you get attracted to that passion and go, well, hang on, I'm playing for something. You think it's important playing for the Sydney Roosters. You go and play for a French team in a village and see how important it is to those people. They talk about... you. In France, you play for the bell tower because everyone, you know, it was a, it's a war thing about ringing the bell and you play oh, for your bell tower or you protect your bell tower. And that's the passion. And that was the bit about, that's where I fell really in love with rugby league. I played rugby league because I was uh, pretty good at it, but not good enough. But because I played at St. Greg's, I loved it. I played afterwards because it was a means for being professional and, and going through university and I really wanted to play NRL, but then I really found what it was about rugby league that I loved. Because you can, when you're on the fringes in a reserve grade around there, you can, you can fall out of love because everyone only focuses on the NRL. Yeah, okay. And you can only see that. So therefore that the bits that I fell in love with in France was very much the purity of rugby league. What was it about the game that I loved? What was it that, made you go and play in front of 300 people in, you know, minus three degrees and walk out there and play, well, you find out that it's, there's some heart and soul to the reason that you want to do that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying it's, it, it's always there, but you had to fight for it sometimes on those days. And Would you have stayed in France if it hadn't have been for rugby league or that's what kept you there? Had you met Sandra earlier? Yeah, on? so I met Sandra sort of halfway through the first stint. And I actually got an opportunity to possibly go to Western Force because I did sports science at uni. So I, I was going to go to Western Force and do um, when they were starting up. But I got offered a, a sliding doors moment to sort of either go there within a week or stay on as the head coach of Toulouse. And I stayed and I would have stayed there longer but there was always that underlying ambition within myself to get the most out of myself. And, and I, even though rugby league, I loved France, which was the reason I went back. But 
my ambition to see what I could get out of myself was higher. Yeah. What did you love about the French? What do you love about the French? So it's funny, the French get a tough time because they can be obstinate in their, their character trait or arrogant, but they're proud, they are so proud. And that's the reason they've got such a strong culture throughout you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of change in that area. They're rock solid in their culture because of the character that they are. But then there's a depth to them as well. They love life and everyone knows the stories about that. But I remember, if you, I, I tell the story, if you meet an Australian, if you're a friend of mine and then you meet another friend, you'll shake their hand and you're friends with them straight away. And there's often that openness with Australians. Mm -hmm. And then 50 times later, you'll be at the same openness level with them. Oh, hi, how are you going? But there won't be a depth. You won't get past that yeah. certain point. So yeah. you know lots of people yeah. and he's a friend of, yeah, I know him well, but there's not a depth. Whereas the French, if you meet them once, you get nothing at all. <laughs> you get hi, how are you type thing and right. you meet them again. And, and people get, say that as arrogant. Obviously, yeah. And you get nothing again and you meet them, you could meet them 10 times and you're getting nothing. Jeez. But then you're not selling them to be well, Robert. But you meet them for the 11th time. <laughs> yes. Okay. And if they, if they care for you and if there's a depth there, you're in and you are in forever. Right. And there's, there's a depth to their relationships. I would say they've got smaller groups of friends, but more meaningful relationships. And the food and wine? Did you yeah, like that? Yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> yeah, they're, um, they know how to eat and drink well. I bought you a bottle of wine today. I know, I could see that there. I, just, well, I needed to ask you whether or not you gave it to me because I found it in my office and it's obviously French. <laughs> I didn't want to no, give something but back I'll to take you. it. I'll definitely take it. <laughs> yeah, but you I would have given you a red wine. I know okay. you don't like it. But you, you know, you can taste wines and know what sort of region they're from. You understand the regions. I don't think anybody. If they do that, they're lying. <laughs> they're, I don't. I know areas, grapes in France come from, and yeah. and all of that. But they're, you know, no one. Knows what it, it that well, but I'd like to taste. But you them. love it, don't you? you? It's one of your passions. Yeah, I think the yeah. the food and wine that goes with, yeah, that's a, an understanding. Because as soon as you sit down at, so Sandra's family, her mother's an amazing cook, um, but it's not, it's not what we see. Like everyone thinks French food is fine dining, because that's the way they dress it up. It is heart and soul, Sunday lunchtime. You know, I, I tell the story, the first time I met Sandra's parents, they were two metres apart in the garage and one had the skin and the other one had the legs and they were... Of a chicken. Of a hair. <laughs> of a hair and they were... And so you would have, you know, boar or hair or, you know, and, and it all comes from their garden. and Right. Like I sat down for Christmas lunch and I... It's if you've here's one tip if you take if you go to Christmas lunch in France, make sure there's a back to the chair. Such a crucial point in I sat on a stool, like you know, a long bench stool. If you're gonna sit for five hours at Christmas lunch without a without a back on your chair, it's a long, that's oh it's amazing. There's um and it's yeah, it all flows from that and the the and that's where the depth of comes from. The yeah, they're yeah, same as us. They're very, 
their language, comedy is huge in France. Like some of their, like we have comedians that are, that are, are coming back to television. They've had it all throughout the time that I've ever seen there. They've played a huge role in, in television and uh, the arts play a huge role. Yeah. What's the, the Elvis Presley or Neil Diamond of France who just passed away? Oh, um, um, Sandra. Johnny Halliday. Johnny Halliday. Johnny Halliday. Is, is Sandra over, he, the, over his passing yet? I don't think France will ever be over his <laughs> passing. And no one knows outside of France, but the Elvis of France. <laughs> when did you know you were going to be a coach? So firstly, did you always feel that you were a leader? When you were amongst mates, did you feel that you had a leadership role? Did it, was there a natural gravitation for you to be a leader within a, like a small group of mates? Uh, yeah, it was always through junior sport in that way. I always had an opinion, I would say. Mm. That doesn't always make you a leader, but I always was in and around that throughout my whole, you know, all sport throughout that, my, my junior years. Um, and captain of reserve grade teams and, yeah. and that, 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 that's never a good title, but that was common. Did it mean something for you to be the captain or a leader? Yeah. It did? Yep. Yeah, I was so, very... so, so would it be that you felt like you had something to say to the world? Oh, uh, I don't know. Something to say it... to them or? No, no, my, my, I don't know. My bit was, I, I've always wanted to get the most out of myself now you fall into different professions or, or, or sports or whatever, people fall into it. But I knew what, with what I was trying to do, I was trying to get the most out of myself. And that's what I'm still trying, I'm trying to get the most out of myself. Mm. And it happens to be in a more public way than what it has been before, but there's not, that's the internal drive. It's not something where I want people to see me doing that it's very much i have to within myself search for something uh, more so it's, it's uncontrollable to some extent definitely uncontrollable wow. that's, that, it's, that's, it's, that's that sounds yeah. healthy robert oh well many i think it doesn't because that's that insatiability that you're talking about and that endless search and, and i think it, it you have to well that means that a lot of stuff goes by the wayside to get that, um, but then you make sure that you do have space to realign with, you know, time with family or whatever. But a lot of other interests drop away because you, you're in the middle of that search. Yeah, you know, and that's why people. You, you, you know, talk about imbalance. If you're going to achieve anything great in life, there has to be an imbalance. But you just need to be aware of that imbalance. Yeah, I think there there are ex excessive people that you know, can get it wrong and, and very, very successful people that go, I wish I did this differently, yeah. but would have you been very successful yeah. if you were different? And I know there's all this stuff. I think people, you can learn. I don't think you can learn what I just said there about that internal desire. Mm. I think you can learn about work-life balance by reading books and trying to implement some of them a little bit more. But I don't believe in starting out with an attitude of work-life balance and yeah. then trying to be successful all yeah. in one. I, I, abs I, I continually say that to staff. As long as you're aware of the imbalance and you're willing to make that sacrifice, yeah. uh, go ahead.
So what do you love about leadership? What gives you joy? Because I think, Robbo, for the listeners, they need to understand that within the Roosters, you're definitely seen as a, as a strong leader. Within the Rugby League fraternity, you're seen as a strong leader. And I think that more generally now within the sporting world, you're seen as a strong leader. And, and I know that that must be humbling for you, but what are the things that make you a great leader? What are you good at? That, that puts you in that position? Yeah, I, look, I think the one, one of the things that I'd like to say is about those clear eyes, about when I was in France, about um, I, often we look, I, I've stopped looking for others for direction. Mm. That was a really, that's a really not controversial point, but everybody, I, I think you need people to talk to. I think the word mentor is really interesting as a as a word because i think you need people to give you direction but if you're trying to follow someone's path then you won't be unique you won't have you you won't won't be be authentic yeah and you won't be a great leader so one thing i i tried to follow like so rico right so luke and i were good mates before i left for france and i used to play similar position to luke and i used to look at rico and i go if i just do what we used to hang out quite a bit If I do what Rico did, then I'll get to those heights. And that was never going to be the case. But I was always trying to go, well, if I just do this, I'll be okay. Whereas I need to go, I need to do completely different yeah. things to Rico to get be successful. And that's a small point. But when I got there, there was a choice that I made that why is everybody looking for someone else for motivation when do your own thing, find your own path, have your own opinions, um, you know, have your own failures, have your own successes without, and learn everything you can. Don't be, um, uh, don't be, don't think that you know everything, but search for me, not for whose coattails can I follow. And if I do what he does, I'll be okay. And so therefore, the only thing I'd say is I think I'm, I've had my own style and opinions from the start. I don't feel like I've felt like Oh, he. I don't, I, the good thing is, I don't think anybody's ever said, "Oh, he's like him." I don't think I've ever heard that, yeah. which I've never thought about until now. No one's ever said, "Oh, he coaches like him or like him," or and he speaks like him or he behaves like him. Yeah, and, uh, and that's uh, and that's not because it was a conscious point for the external feedback. It was a conscious internal decision to go, "No, no, no. I'm I'm only going to do this my way, and I'm going to do it with." the most integrity that I can. Yeah. Robert, well, it gets back to what I say to the leaders here in the office. You've got it. What is it that you want to say? Yeah. What's hard, what is authentically you? It's hard, I know. Hard. I, it took me years to understand exactly what it was that I wanted to say. I feel like I've got a decent understanding of it now. But I think people find it in different ways. So I would follow trends in most other parts of life where I don't think I'm just, I'm following whatever the world says I should, what phone I should have, or, you know, what house I should live in, or yeah. what, like all, yeah, like all of that. Going. I'm just going, well, someone tell me what I'm following. And people are in those areas going, I'm going to do something different. And I, mine is the way that I coach rugby league. Yep. yep. And, and not just what's on the field. I'm talking about the whole way that, the way that I want to go about, um, leading the Sydney Roosters as a coach. I, I, I'm going to do it in 
the way that I think's best for the Sydney Roosters. Not for me always, for the Sydney Roosters. So a good leader is unselfish in that, that, that players won't listen to you until they know that you care about them. They're, they're, you have to be unselfish at that level. It has to be about them, doesn't it? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a really interesting point. You can feel when someone's selfish. I think they have to understand that you are a driven individual and confident in yourself, but you will make decisions about what's best for them or the club. Yep. If I make decisions of what's best for me, then in tough times, I'll protect myself. In good times, I'll be greedy. Yep. In like that's how it'll all come out. So I think they they want someone that that that's going to lead and be strong, and they can rely on. But they know that I'm going to fight for to be the best that I can be, and but then I'm going to make decisions based on those things that I said. How much do you care about the players in terms of improving them? I know you've just had the the trip end of season trip to the Somme and to educate them about the 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 war and um, and Australia's role in it and um, yep uh, was that what was that about Robert was that team building or do you really want these individuals uh, that you're responsible for to improve as human beings and give them experiences that they wouldn't otherwise have I want them to be uh, so I think about it in these terms if I was an average reserve grade player like I was Am I going to still be a better person by the time I finish at the Roosters and, and be able to make better choices and be uh, the man that I want to be? Yep. You know, so that's, that's the bit. There, is, there are benefits as a team to go and do these things, but that's, that definitely wasn't the goal. It was, come on, I, I believe that we don't just work th for the Sydney Roosters. We live our life through the Sydney Roosters. Yeah. So the Roosters have a responsibility to improve the lives of the people that work for them. Yeah. And I think that that is why I'm drawn to the club. If it was about football, I would, wouldn't really care. But I love the fact that it is very good for the community. It's good for the individuals. I see them like that you seem to recruit the right types or if they're not the right types, they are by the end, by within a few years. Yeah. What? How do you get the right types? How do you know when? Yeah. So we, you recruit based on talent to begin with. Can yeah. you play footy? Yeah. Like you. That's a. It's a. It's a really clear thing. You've got to be. You. You can't be an NRL player. We don't recruit NRL players. We recruit. Uh, you know, top four NRL players. That's our philosophy. We don't, oh, he, he could play NRL. Yeah, that, but is he going to turn into a top four player? So that's a, um, uh, I believe that's a really good strategy for any club yeah. to have. That's, that should be your recruitment. So we do recruit talent, but then there's a specific type of player that we, we want to recruit. The way that they play the game, not just the decisions that they make. They've got to make, they've got to be a top talent. Yeah. But you have to make, um, there's a certain way that you play on the field and then we're getting better and better at, at the off-field about the style of players. We've, like every club, had our issues. Hmm. Um, we're in a, a, a hotbed of community, of, uh, of people yeah, living life in the eastern suburbs and making choices and all of that. And we've, and we've gone in and out of that. And we've, we've, I, I believe that we've had lots of great people um, and then some have made some choices. Why, why, I've asked you this before, but why are rugby league players so poorly behaved? Or are they? 
yeah, I, look, I think be, be, be honest about it, Robbo, because I would have to, I don't know. I think that the, the evidence is overwhelming that, that maybe that they're the worst behaved of any sporting code worldwide. And I know you think there's a really poorly behaved... Oh, no, I think the scrutiny of the way that... No, I think if you go and look at... If you want to pull out the NFL and oh, what, they're, <laughs> what they've been doing in the off-season... Can we you, limit it to some... an Australian jurisdiction then, mate? Um, I would say their rugby league players are much better behaved than the average population. I would say that's a start yeah. yep. as far as how they act. Yep. I would say um, uh, never an excuse. I'd say there's, everyone talks about physical risk-taking. We attract physical risk-takers to our sport and that's attractive to watch because of the stuff we talk about. And they about have before. a greater propensity for poor behaviour. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a threshold of if you not you, but if someone runs across the road when it's at 5 p.m. in the afternoon in traffic, they, they'll get a little bit of a thrill from that. Their threshold's quite low. <laughs> whereas, earlier on, yeah. Whereas a, a rugby league player, yeah. you know, their threshold's high because they've trained that physical threshold. So therefore to get their kicks, their threshold is higher yeah. on those things. Along with, and the major, percentage, 99% of the rugby league population make choices about doing the right thing around that threshold. Yeah. So it, it is a small minority. Yeah, it is, but yeah. it's very public and as it should be. And you, you have, I've seen you with that small minority, turn them around. I haven't and I, and I have. Right. Okay. Okay. And so I, I have on some of them. It's an imperfect uh, endeavour. And there's the difference between character and behaviour. There's the two different things on... Um, if it's their character, mm. you can't turn the tide on that. But if it's in their character, it will continue to come out. If it's behaviour, if they're between 20 and 25 and yeah. the behaviour is that way, but their character's good, they will turn around. So and you just establish about character over behaviour. Yeah, you want and to... Once you, you've got that in your mind, then you'll work on them. Yeah. I like it. And I think, you know, I take my hat off to what the, the Roosters, like that playing group and the whole club, the, the, the positive nature, the, the, I, I'm nothing but impressed with everyone I meet associated with that club. Has it always been like that? I think it's always been a strong club. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the, yep. the, like as far as it's waved in and out of being successful and not. But it's always been one of the foundation clubs, a really strong club, strong clothes, strong area. It represents, for me, the city. So I think that's always been there. It's waved in and out of performance. Now, we've had a period of sustained stability through Nick Politis, where he's always been involved. He's been involved since 76. Yep. But chairmans have a greater control over club, both leagues clubs and the club. And that, if you look at the Roosters from 93, 94 through until now, you'll see a consistency of performance, a consistency yeah. of success. There's a strength about the club from mm. that time on. You have a, a distinct respect and liking for Nick Pilatus, don't you? Yeah, he's a um, very private man. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to, to talk to him a lot over the last seven years about uh, rugby league, obviously, but then more and more just about life and and stuff like that and i haven't met somebody like nick 
So it's really interesting to talk to him about the way that he views life or work. And, and it's such a different insight to what you think people think. And that's what makes him unique. Yeah. Um, and his coolness is important for what we do. His decisiveness as well is vital for what we do. Understanding he's, the he's rules of a, the game. Uh, what I see, Robert, is he, he's got a absolute clarity of thought. Yep. He just he he's he very clear and 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 sums it up in very few words. Yeah, and his process about his decision making, he very rarely gets it wrong just because of his the way that he thinks about. It. Mm. So he's very unique, and that's been. Um, we're very different, but then also we we become very aligned in the way that we think about stuff as well. You are, I would say, Trent Robinson, one of the most competitive people I have ever met, <laughs> and whether it be golf or whatever it is, and I and I am too. But you are intensely um, competitive. How much does it hurt when you don't win, and how important is winning? We talked about before about that how much can I get out of myself? It's not always about an opponent. It's if I haven't achieved what yeah. I think I can achieve. The reward is always how much can you get out of yourself to win a game or win a competition. Yeah, yeah I reckon, I'm because I'm, you've just had a few losses, um, spluttering a little bit, but your demeanor is very positive and confident. Yeah, because the game's on. We're in the yeah. middle of the game. Yeah. Now, if you think that there's 24, there is 24 games a year plus finals and you have to win those games. Mm. But there's only one thing that you have to win and that's, if you, you can't be down when the game's still on. Yeah. Get on with it. Get excited about the, the contest. That's why you've seen me after we've won and you've seen me after I've lost. So mate, at 35 years of age, you you first year coaching first grade in the NRL, you win a premiership. It was amazing. I was there, there that night. I was also there last year. And um, when you won it five years after that, I'm interested to know which one of those wins means the most to you and why. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get asked that again and I'll never answer that in that way it doesn't <laughs> matter for how long it's yeah. because there's never any better feeling mm. and you can't yeah you you can't differentiate you you but Robbo you can because last year was a absolute coach's yeah, but that's yours win. but yeah, that but didn't your... you feel it that that was a real coach's win you made decisions that were really um they were different and you, you... Yeah, they had to be different and they, they were, but that doesn't mean that 13 was as incredible. Yeah. And, but less, that was more about uh, other players or whatever than it was last year. Mm. It, I, I agree with you that the, the strategy around it was different and it had to be, mm. but you won't ever hear me separate the two. Right, okay. Okay. Thanks a and lot for helping third, me on that one. And the fourth. <laughs> Robert, you know, it's always a pleasure. I love um, talking to you, just going over stuff. And I hope everyone's got a greater insight into you, your intelligence and uh, wisdom uh, and your decency. Um, 
So I appreciate you coming in today, mate, and having a chat. Thanks very much. I love it, Paul. Enjoy coming in and, and talking to you and the world's best boardroom, <laughs> the <laughs> most artistic boardroom in, yeah. in Sydney. So, uh, yeah, enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, brother. Cheers.